Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Albert Raboteau. He's Emeritus uh, Professor at, of Religion at Princeton University and in town in Logan to give a talk at a symposium. The talk is Slave Religion and the Transformation of American Religious History. And that's part of a symposium presented by Religious Studies Program and Department of History. They're sponsoring, that's called a Black Religious Experience in American History. Professor Rabato's talk is 4.30 this afternoon, Old Main 115, if you're going to be in the Logan area. And he's the foremost expert on the religion of American slaves prior to the emancipation. His work helped uncover an obscure world heretofore only glimpsed through the distorted lens of slaveholders. And he says that the the rich and humane voices of former slaves speak of slavery as a central religious and moral fact in the history of our nation, a fact that cannot be excused as an exception to the real American story. And he quotes Howard Thurman, By some amazing but vastly creative spiritual insight, the slave undertook the redemption of a religion that the master had profaned in his midst. Albert Rabateau joins me in studio today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, this is uh, very interesting. Uh, maybe we could start with the uh, prevailing wisdom prior to to your starting your work here. This is, which is which I think was that the um, that you couldn't trust the narratives. In fact, the the view was through narratives of slaveholders themselves. That's correct. Uh, the belief in in spite of uh, quite a bit of material published um, during the antebellum period uh, of escaped slaves, their narratives, and interviews with uh, very old ex-slaves done during the 20th century uh, as part of the Works Progress Administration um, during the WPA. uh, And Historians generally were very distrustful of this information, and um, there really was no reason to be any more distrustful of this information than of the information that was left by slaveholders, such as diaries, journals, um, and uh, missionary accounts. So what happened in the 60s, in the context of the development of black studies, in the universities and colleges across the nation was an attempt to get at the invisible church, as it was called, um, the experience, religious and also otherwise, of American slaves by using these narratives judiciously as you would use any narratives. And uh, lo and behold, uh, when those narratives were closely interrogated, Uh, and the evidence that they brought forward uh, was examined, a whole new dimension of the life of slaves, and particularly the religious life of slaves, became visible for the first time. And um, what struck me in beginning the dissertation that Slave Religion, my book, is based on, was the information about slave culture, uh, slave religious behavior, slave theology, um, that we could now see for the first time, thanks to these voices, I better mix mix my metaphor there, that we could hear from these voices. And I want to emphasize here, because in writing Slave Religion, I had very much the feeling that I was uh, hearing these voices and trying to make them accessible to a larger public because it seemed to me that they had a very important story to tell, important story to tell about the limits of American Christianity, a slaveholding Christianity that could somehow domesticate slavery with the Christian gospel in spite of that gospel being a gospel of freedom, as the slaves were quick to point out. And important lessons for the nation, a nation founded with religious freedom. And here, the greatest violation of religious freedom was the denial of the right to worship, often um, as they wished, on the part of slaves. And finally, a challenge to our understanding of the whole notion of freedom 
in this country. The story that's so often told is a narrative that's celebratory of the ever-expanding uh, reach of freedom and liberty for American citizens. And to some extent, that's true. But there's another story which creates um, a counter-narrative to that celebratory one. And that narrative is a narrative of suffering and of brutality and of the enslavement of generations of African and African-descended people. And so what we have is a paradox. The narrative of our history, if it's to be accurate, is a paradoxical narrative of the ongoing spread of freedom, but also the ongoing spread of enslavement and after enslavement of segregation, Jim Crow laws, and the long shadow of the plantation as it continues to weigh heavily upon the lives of black Americans. Mm. Do you think that that, uh, you write, that this neglect of black history distorted both black and white Americans' perceptions of who, who they were, I guess, and who they are? Do you think it's, it, in, our, in our popular perception, think it, that's still distorted? I do. I think um, that there is um, a lack of, of understanding because of a lack of hearing uh, each other's stories. Um, we are decades past the civil rights movement. We are still, by and large, a segregated nation. Not de jure, not by law, but de facto. And it's interesting to look at residential patterns and the patterns of school um, segregation. I hear from my sociologist friends that both are worse than they were in the 60s. So we remain um, two nations, and part of the tragedy of that is that we don't hear each other's stories. I mean, if you look at the wake of the, of the uh, murder of Trayvon Martin, statistics showed that black Americans were much, much more pessimistic about the state of relation, race relations in this country than white Americans. That's a significant fact. And it shows that the understanding of each other's histories continues to affect our misunderstandings of each other. Mm-hmm. So part of the more general meaning of my, of my book, and it's... Um, long-lived continuation and publication is, I think, to say something um, that we profoundly need to hear about the importance of memory and the importance of sharing the memories of all of the races and religions that have come to these shores. If I may, I'd like to share an anecdote from Ralph Ellison's classic novel, The Invisible Man. The unnamed protagonist of that novel finds himself working in a paint um, factory. And the corporation that produces the paint is called Liberty Paints. And their main product is a a paint called Optic White. Now, the secret uh, to optic white, which is used uh, and is so popular because it's used to whitewash national monuments, churches, and um, government buildings. Notice that it's very important to whitewash those buildings. The secret of optic white is known only by one person in the plant. And this is a very elderly black janitor who works in the sub-sub-basement, read, subconscious, of the plant. And he calibrates five black drops to make, go into the formula for it to make optic white paint. And if it's not calibrated exactly, if it's not five black whites, it doesn't turn out to be optic white. It turns out brown or gray or whatever. 
No, I think Olsen is playing, playing there, ironically, with a very important um, idea. And that idea is that the purpose of history is not to simply tell a celebratory story. It's not simply to whitewash the national monuments, uh, the, the government buildings, and our, our, uh, our public places. The purpose of our history, if it's to be truly inclusive, is to include the stories of all of the peoples who have come to make up this country. And I'm convinced that if those stories are told and if we listen to them, if they are in our history books, if they are in our discussions, that we will come to realize the deep common humanity that underlies all our stories Mm. in spite of their particular differences uh, and indeed because of their particular differences. And in that way, we will come to recognize the ever-exfoliating identity of what it is to be an American. Hmm. You you often hear, and it's maybe a yearning, um, people say, you know, it's, it's been X number of years, whatever it is, can't we at long last get past this? And mm-hmm. there, there's a, this dream of a post-racial America, and you're... You're telling me, I think, that if we delve deeper into the past and the right kind of past, perhaps, ironically, going in the opposite direction from what people want to do, that will help us. Yes. I mean, I think that you you can't uh, ignore the past. Um, it's, it's like thinking of ignoring your own story and what it is that made you who you are. And here we're talking about a society— um, I love Lincoln's phrase, the mystic cords of memory that bind us together. And unless we know those mystic cords, unless we, we, as it were, unless we play those mystic cords, um, there's going to be a deep amnesia um, that truncates our lives, truncates the civility that a democracy depends on truncates the mutual understanding of difference that a democracy depends on, truncates religious fellowship that um, certainly most religions depend on in terms of their philosophies of charity and concern for others. Um, One of the first petitions from slaves for freedom that we have comes from the 1770s in Massachusetts. The slaves send a petition to the uh, Massachusetts governor and um, uh, they say, how is it that we can be kept enslaved in the bowels of a Christian country? The message of the gospel says, bear one another's burdens. How does the master bear our burdens when he burdens us down with chains? So there's a need to to remember this. It's it's a kind of moral imperative that enlivens our possibility for civic responsibility, for civic understanding, and for democratic action. If you just joined us, we're talking with Albert Rabato. He's emeritus professor of religious history at, at Princeton, and uh, he is author of, of a seminal work, uh, the, the, one of the great works in this field, Slave Religion, the Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South. He's in Logan uh, to give a talk as a part of a uh, symposium. It's Black Religious Experience in American History. It's happening today and tomorrow on the USU campus, sponsored by Religious Studies Program, a Department of History. And Professor Rabito's talk is at 4.30 this afternoon in Old Main 115. It's entitled Slave Religion and the Transformation of American Religious History. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We'll take a break. When we come back, I'll ask Professor Rabito to uh, maybe transmit as best he can some of the voices that he discovered and that are in his, his book. Uh, very interesting, powerful voices. And uh, he talks in the book about the authenticity that comes from, from suffering in, in slavery. 
and uh, the messages that uh, former slaves uh, give us and that he helped to, to rediscover. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Moab Times Independent Newspaper, a source for instant news, business, ads, and events in Moab and the Four Corners region, serving southeastern Utah communities since 1896. Information is at moabtimes.com. And by USU Human Resources. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. October is National Depression Awareness Month. Depression is a common but serious illness. Do not be ashamed if you believe or feel that you may have depression. Here are some useful tips when dealing with common symptoms. Get a depression screening done if you are feeling down. It is better to get checked than to sit and wait. The sooner you seek treatment, the better your outlook will be. Treat problems such as insomnia or sleep apnea to help ease your symptoms. Eat healthy. A good diet rich in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and fish may help battle depression. Learn to walk away. Depression can cloud your judgment. Try taking a deep breath and make decisions about a topic when you begin to feel better. Remember, depression does not have to be a normal part of life. With the right steps and a positive attitude, you can overcome it. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, pleased and privileged to have with us uh, Albert Rabito, uh, um, Emeritus Professor at Princeton. The foremost expert on the religion of American slaves prior to emancipation, his work helped uncover an obscure world theretofore only glimpsed through the distorted lens of slaveholders. His book is Slave Religion, the Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South. He's author of several other books as well. And uh, he quotes uh, Howard Thurman. We'll get into this a little later. By some amazing but vastly creative spiritual insight, the slave undertook the redemption of a religion that the master had profaned in his midst. Uh, Professor Rabito's uh, talk to a symposium today on the USU campus is entitled Slave Religion and the Transformation of American Religious History. And that's 4.30 this afternoon in Old Main 115. And there are many other talks to be given uh, tomorrow as, as the uh, symposium gets underway in earnest. Uh, the symposium is today and tomorrow. And it's Black Religious Experience in American History, sponsored by Religious Studies Program at USU and Department of History at USU as well. Uh, I want to get into uh, maybe have you give me some of the, you know, some, some of the voices that, uh, that, that you say are very powerful. Uh, before we do that, I want to maybe get your take on the recent movie, uh, 12 Years a Slave. Um, this is, w- one discussion that I've been hearing is that one of the effects, at least some of the reviewers are saying, is that in portraying in a very real way the brutality of slavery, perhaps this can help dissolve some of the you know, popular pleasant plantation life <laughs> kind of a you know kind of a mythology that, that, mm-hmm. that's out there I wonder, I wonder what your take is well unfortunately I haven't seen the movie yet yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing it very much uh, and it doesn't surprise me that a faithful rendition of Solomon Northrup's um, slave narrative 12 years a slave um, doesn't surprise me that it would show brutality um, I first encountered Northrup's narrative when I was doing research uh, for my book, Slave Religion, and um, his narrative, as well as others, um, are replete with uh, with the brutality of slavery. Not only the physical brutality, but the psychological and social brutality. The brutality that most affected me, I think, in reading these narratives was the stories of um, parents being separated from their children, of wives being separated from husbands, of uh, friends being separated from friends, which is a constant leitmotif in the narratives of slavery. Indeed, one of the first accounts that we have going back to the 1440s of uh, the experience of enslavement of Africans is an account written by a Portuguese narrator named Zarara. And he's describing uh, the sale of uh, a group of slaves, a crowd of slaves, outside the city walls of the Portuguese southern city of Lagos. And he describes how 
mothers are being separated from children, on how wives are being separated from husbands, how the slaves are weeping and screaming and crying, how they're falling on the ground, how they're crying to their own gods. And he says, uh, even as an observer, I began to weep at the sign of sight of so much human suffering. And he says, but then the, my I realized that my my conscience needed to take over instead of my human emotion, for I realized that they will now have the benefits of civilization and Christian Christianity. Mm. So right there at the start of the Atlantic slave trade, we see this solving you know, of conscience by the excuse that somehow this is going to be better for the Africans or their descendants. So the brutality of, of, uh, of slavery is shot through in these narratives. And I think, again, realizing that is important, not, not just because of how shocking it is and how much it should, I hope, stir up empathy in the viewer's uh, hearts, but also because one realizes that this brutality did not destroy the humanity of these people. That somehow they were able to suffer and find meaning in that suffering, which is part of what, part of what Thurman is after in that quote, mm. and to even transcend suffer, suffering. Um, so um, we don't need to stop with the suffering. We need to realize and nurture the empathy that we have for their suffering, as well as for people who suffer now, people who suffer wherever. Um, the African-American experience is a paradigm for universal experience, as Gandhi recognized when he said, "When were you there when I crucified my Lord is my favorite of the Negro spirituals because it gets at the universal human experience under the healing wings of suffering. So the message is, is not that suffering is good. The message is that it's possible to endure suffering and even to go beyond it and to transcend it. And these are the, the nuggets of wisdom that the slave narratives contain. Um, with reference to that, let me just read one short one Certainly. for you. This is uh, one of the voices <coughs> excuse me, that I quote <coughs> as a, a kind of epigraph for my book. Lord, Lord, baby, I hope you young folks will never know what slavery is and will never suffer as your foreparents. Oh, God, God, I'm living to tell the tale to you. Yes, Jesus, you've spared me. This is the voice of Minnie Folks, a former slave. And it attests to the possibility of listening to these voices um, and hearing what they have to say. Another voice that I would like to quote introduces something else about the slave experience. Um, the fact that that experience brought whites and blacks together in intimate relationship, in intimate relationships with a terrific asymmetry of power. Um, but the slaves had a role in that relationship. And I want to uh, read this one narrative that gives some sense of how, even though the power relationship is so asymmetric, that is, the whites have control, that there's one aspect <clears throat> that the whites don't have control over, and that is the slave souls. This is a narrative from a slave named Mort. One day, while in the field, Plowing, I heard a voice. I looked but saw no one. Everything got dark, and I was unable to stand any longer. 
With this I began to cry, Mercy, mercy, mercy. As I prayed, an angel came and touched me, and I looked new. Conversion experience. And there came a soft voice saying, My little one, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You are a chosen vessel unto the Lord. No matter what white people think about us, we are made in the image and likeness of God. We are the chosen of God. I must have been in this trance more than an hour. I went on to the barn and found my master waiting for me. I began to tell him my experience. My master sat, watching and listening to me. And then he began to cry. Something about Mort's testimony touched the master's heart. He turned from me and said in a broken voice, Mort, I believe you are a preacher. From now on, you can preach to the people here on my place. But tomorrow morning, Sunday, I want you to preach to my family and neighbors. The next morning, at the time appointed, I stood up on two planks in front of the porch of the big house, and without a Bible or anything, I began to preach to my master and the people. My thoughts came so fast that I could hardly speak fast enough. My soul caught on fire, inspiration of the Spirit, and soon I had them all in tears. I told them that they must be born again and that their souls must be freed from the shackles of hell. Despite this situation of slavery, Despite the asymmetry of power in the master-slave relation, the conversion experience of evangelical Christianity served as a symbolic common ground for Mort and his master, a space, temporary though it might have been, of mutuality, Hmm. where Mort, despite his being a slave, because of the authenticity of his religious experience and of his suffering and the demonstrable power of his preaching inspired by the Spirit, exercised religious power of a very real sort over the white master and his family. Hmm. Now, what his fellow slaves thought of that, we don't have their voices but they must have been astounded to see Mort breaking up the rocky soul, the rocky hearts of the master and his family. Mm. We're talking with Albert Rabateau on the program today. He is a foremost expert in uh, American religious history, specifically a religion of American slaves prior to emancipation. Uh, his seminal work is Slave Religion, the Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South. And he's giving a lecture as a part of a Symposium on the USU campus. It's free and open to the public. Black Religious Experience in American History. It's happening today and tomorrow in Professor Rabito's speech today at 4.30 p.m. Old Main 115 is open to the public. It's called Slave Religion and the Transformation of American Religious uh, History. You can join us here with this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495 or to upraxis at gmail.com. The, uh, the, the Christianity, and I suppose that... Uh, Probably early on, the slaves were Christian. Masters viewed themselves as, as Christian. There would have been Muslim slaves as well and, and others, but mostly Christian. How different was that Christianity? One example is the slaveholders appealed to the Bible, and you know, for examples of slavery and justification, the slaves themselves were were appealing to their religion as uh, to point out that this is this is unjust and against Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I believe they, in many cases, they would worship together in, in the church. The slaves would go off for illegal religious meetings, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. that, and that's why we don't have a lot of records. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder if you talk about the, the, the different ways that the, the two groups viewed Christianity. Yes. Uh, the Christianization of the, of the slaves um, was not um, – an easy uh, task. That is, early on, uh, there was objection on the part of the master class to allowing missionaries to preach to the slaves 
because they worried about the egalitarian dimensions of Christianity. And they were concerned about holding fellowship with people that they held at the same time in bondage. So there's something about perceived by the masters about Christianity that is profoundly threatening to the hierarchy upon which slavery is based. Now, the missionaries in the colonial period tried to overcome this problem by preaching slavery as a means, excuse me, by preaching Christianity as a means of slave control. So they would appeal to passages in the Bible, such as slaves be obedient to your masters from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, ad nauseum, in order to prove that Christianity uh, and slavery were not incompatible, as the masters had sometimes worried, but were indeed um, very much um, hand in hand. Uh, now, this uh, hindrance, therefore, can first be seen in the refusal of the masters to allow slaves to be baptized in some of the colonies. And that was based on the belief that if you baptize somebody, uh, you would have to have to free them. So you find in the colonial period laws being passed by the various colonies that baptism didn't change the status, social status of somebody with regard to slavery or freedom. So you see there's this, ten there's this tension there in early days. And with some of the, uh, the new denominations created uh, on, on, these, uh, on these shores, um, there were initial um, moves towards anti-slavery, early Baptists in Virginia, um, Methodists. But their witness against slavery always sounded on the rock of the profitability of the peculiar institution, that uh, that was that rock was never going to be, never going to be broken, and so always it was accommodated. There are records of biracial Christian churches, in which at the some of the disciplinary meetings, it's clear that the white members of the church were concerned because some of the black members some of them founding members of the church, um, their marriages had been uh, broken by husbands and wives being sold apart. And they struggled this. What, you know, what, do, what do we do? It didn't lead them to ever question the laws about slave marriage. Um, so it's always an accommodation of Christianity that took place. Now, in spite of this, uh, slaves as as Thurman says, by some amazing act of creative imagination, we're able to take from the Bible, uh, not just the Christian Gospels, but from the Hebrew Bible, especially the story of, of Exodus, a whole um, theology of liberation. So slaves hear, or in some cases read Exodus, and they say it as one maid said to her mistress, white mistress, when the white mistress said, uh, you know, how, how can you, you know, how can you believe in God given the way you, you know, you're being treated? And she said, we have need to believe in God because if there were no God and if he were not going to uh, do us well, why would he have made us? That's why we believe that when we hear about Exodus and God's freeing the slaves, it means we poor Africans. So the notion of Exodus was a very powerful narrative, counter-narrative, which slaves heard and which they used in terms of their sense of history to... Um, negotiate for themselves a different understanding of history than that of white, white Christians. Mm -hmm. And so that would be one prime example of why Christianity would appeal to the slaves and how they created a Christianity that stood in opposition to white Christianity.
Americans thought that they were a new Israel. They had escaped from bondage of the old world by crossing the Atlantic. Slaves thought that they were the old Israel, still in bondage in this American Egypt. Two conflicting narratives about, based in the same religion, about who they were. Mm. There is also the aspect from the Christian Bible, the Christian Gospels, of the suffering servant. If Christ came as a suffering servant, who resembled him more, the slaves or the masters? So you can see there's this, this constant inversion of the Christian message. Now that takes institutional form in the secret meetings that the slaves would attend and would, uh, are called the hush harbors out in the woods uh, in secret where they could have, as some of the former slaves put it, real preaching and real meetings where they could, in the ecstasy of their prayer services, in the ecstasy of the, of the ring shout, this counterclockwise circular dance, um, when they could celebrate their identification with the children of Israel, when they could celebrate their identification with Christ, where they could celebrate this identification that Mort speaks of, of being chosen. And in the face of a system bent on dehumanizing them, which constantly at every turn taught them that they were less human than whites were. This was a tremendous support to their, to their own sense of their humanity, of their dignity, indeed of their ultimate worth in the sight of God. So basically, you have two different Christianities working in this country. One is that of the slaves, the suffering Christianity, in which actually on these shores, we see echoed the lives and the deaths and the triumph of the ancient martyrs. If one wants to find suffering Christianity, martyr Christianity, one doesn't have to go all the way back to the period of late antiquity in the Roman Empire. One doesn't have to go to the persecution of Christianity, say, in Soviet Russia. One can find it here in the American Southland in the sufferings of African-American slave Christians. And you say that that's – we don't popularly – we don't normally have that conception, do we? Mm-hmm. If you think of martyrs or confessors, you, you go back to the Roman period. Mm-hmm. It's the Christians against the oppressing pagans yes. until, you know, Constantine, of course. And, and as you say, in modern times, we don't think about – the slaves as Christian martyrs, perhaps, I guess, because their, their oppressors were Christian as well? I don't know. But. Yeah, yeah, I think we, we, we don't appreciate the irony that the, uh, the ancient martyrs were, were uh, persecuted by so-called pagans. Um, the slave Christians were persecuted by their fellow Christians. Now, what that suggests is that for slave Christianity, that... Uh, that uh, comfort zone that that you, that uh, was forged that I spoke about a few minutes ago by the proponents of slavery validating it by their appeal to scripture is denied by the slaves version of slavery. Of, of scripture. So that Frederick Douglass would say, this slaveholding Christianity is a hypocrisy. It's not Christianity. Or later on, black theologians would say, this isn't a Christian country. This is a country that worships, worships Anglo-Saxonism. It would be impossible for Americans, Christians, to Christianize the world because they preach and practice a slaveholding, um, a race-hating, a militaristic and materialistic form of Christianity. It will be up to the darker races of the world to Christianize the, the world. So that there's this inherent dichotomy here. So for, to put it in theological terms, what the slaves were saying with their words, when secretly and with their bodies, sometimes secretly, is that this isn't Christianity, this is a Christian heresy. It's a heretical version of Christianity. 
Mm. It's a corruption of Christianity. Right. We're talking with Albert Rabateau. He is emeritus professor at Princeton. He's one of the foremost experts on the religion of American slaves prior to Lincoln's emancipation. His work helped uncover an obscure world, therefore only glimpsed through the distorted lens of slaveholders. His book, seminal work, is Slave Religion, the Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South. And uh, he is in Logan for a symposium ongoing today and tomorrow at Utah State University, Black Religious Experience in American History, presented by the USU Religious Studies Program and USU Department of History. And uh, Professor Rabito's talk is today at 4.30 in Old Main, 1.15 on the USU campus. And uh, there are many other talks being given uh, tomorrow as well, part of this, part of this uh, uh, symposium. We'll take a brief break, and we'll be back with Albert Rabito. Uh, following this. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, she passed on a classical music scholarship for eight years playing bluegrass with the Grasshoppers. Moving to Georgia, she formed her own band, well known for its ethereal vocals, enthusiasm, and hard-hitting songs. I'm Dave Higgs, and Honey Deaton and Dream will be picking and singing a few live ones on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Saturday nights at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm speaking with Albert Rabito. He is emeritus professor at Princeton University, and he's a foremost expert on the religion of American slaves prior to emancipation. His seminal work is Slave Religion, the Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South. He's author of many other works, and he's in Logan to uh, give a, a talk to a symposium. Uh, on the USU campus. It's happening today and tomorrow. It's called Black Religious Experience in American History, presented by a Religious Studies Program, a Department of History at USU. Professor Rabito's speech is Slave Religion and the Transformation of American Religious History. That's today at 4.30 at, in old uh, main room 115. Uh, we just have a few minutes uh, left here with uh, Professor Rabito. I want to uh, quote from the afterword that you wrote to, to, your, to your book. It's 25 years later. Um, and uh, you say, you're talking about the authenticity of these voices, which you had helped rediscover and, and, and give uh, legitimacy to, talking about former slaves. Uh, you say, it is the power of their voices that finally explains the impact of slave religion, your book, and why it has endured. Through its pages, people who had been through fire and refined like gold reveal the capability of the human spirit not only to endure bitter suffering, but also to resist and even transcend the persistent attempt of evil to strike it down. And uh, you say that lends great authenticity to these voices that we, maybe still to this day, we don't give enough weight to. Yes, yes the, the uh, tried by fire and found like gold is a uh, reference to uh, Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, one of the prophets. Um, yes, I think, you know, we evade suffering. I mean, it's, it's kind of a normal human response. Uh, and we evade it by... Uh, many means um, and of course suffering is the human condition it can't be evaded uh, life is uh, in, the, in, the, in the real is life in a blues key uh, as many black musicians uh, have taught us uh, life is a sorrowful joy it's the title of a memoir that I wrote um Sorrow turning into joy, um, but a joy that's always tinged with a sense of sorrow. This is a lesson that the slaves knew and knew well, knew in their bones. And it's a lesson I think that we can all learn from because the attempt to evade suffering, the attempt to evade death, the attempt to evade um, our ultimate powerlessness uh, can take dangerous forms. It can take forms of addiction. It can take forms of abuse. And as Baldwin pointed out, it's extremely dangerous for a country as powerful as ours. So Baldwin is a great spokesman. I urge everyone to read his uh, first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. 
in which he captures beautifully um, the meaning of suffering when transformed through a spiritual understanding. And I'm quoting him or uh, referencing him when I talk about the authenticity of, of, of suffering. He applies that, that uh, word, interestingly enough, to uh, um, Mother McCandless's tambourine has this unimpeachable authority. As John Grimes, the hero of the narrative, is, is uh, going through a conversion experience mm. and hears that sound. Mm. So a wonderful way of thinking about this unimpeachable authority is in sound, the sound of the spirituals, the sound of the moans, the sound of the blues, uh, the sounds of gospel music. Mm. There we can sense that authenticity and, and it can touch us and touch move our hearts. We just have uh, about a minute left. Um, I was just thinking, you're were, you were talking about uh, this can be dangerous. This, this disconnect mm-hmm. can be dangerous, Baldwin says, for a nation. Uh, and I, I made that leap as you were t- telling me about this uh, Portuguese man, mm-hmm. 1400s, yes. who consciously disconnected himself. But as, as a nation, and I think probably any nation that uh, struggled with, with history of slavery, uh, we've had this and maybe to this day have this disconnect that we, that we have. Yeah, we do. I mean, uh, there's a wonderful book that uh, came out a couple of years ago on uh, the new Jim Crow, which is about the incarceration of black men and women, uh, rates of incarceration in, 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 our, uh, in our prison, our, ju- our justice system. Um, there, are, there is poverty, uh, which is increasing in our country. There are all kinds of ways in which we immure, that is, we... we bury it behind a wall, our sense of empathy for the actual suffering going on in the richest nation of the world. Mm-hmm. So part of the task of listening to these voices, hearing them, and this is what King knew so well in the civil rights movement, is to come into personal contact with the, the innocent suffering that is going on so that, unlike Zarara back in the mid-14th century, we can pay attention to the empathy, the compassion that moves us. Abraham Joshua Heschel had a great phrase for it. When we can truly empathize with, uh, with others, the suffering of others, we are sharing in the divine pathos of God for humanity. It's a good place to uh, end the conversation. We're out of time. Uh, Albert Rabateau, uh, Emeritus Professor at Princeton University is in Logan for a symposium called Black Religious Experience in American History. Religious Studies Program, Department of History at USU, are sponsoring the symposium. His book, uh, among others with the seminal book, is Slave Religion, the Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South. And Professor Rabito's speech is 4.30 this afternoon, Old Main 115. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure being here. For producer uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Most people who come into the StoryCorps recording booth bring a partner and have a conversation. 46-year-old Greg Peck's interview partner had a family emergency just prior to their appointment and had to cancel. Greg reluctantly agreed to come into the booth anyway, and StoryCorps facilitator Olivia Cueva interviewed Greg about his lifelong affair with baseball. Greg, when did you first fall in love with baseball? I remember hearing the, the bells ring from the ice cream truck driving down the street. I was six years old, and I had a dime in my hand, and I went running out of my door to hopefully catch that ice cream man. And I bought my very first pack of baseball cards. There was a Topps brand baseball card pack. There were 10 cards and a stick of bubble gum. And so when did you first start playing? The year that I turned eight years old was the year that Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's home run record. My older brother, he took me to see the Padres play the Atlanta Braves. And Hank Aaron hit two home runs in that game. It was just maybe a month or two after he had broken that record. That same year that I saw Hank Aaron, I did start playing Little League Baseball. I'm left-handed, and so I always loved to play first base. This particular year, I played in the outfield most of the time. 
But this one game, my coach, he put me at first base. But I had this very special glove, my baseball mitt, that I had earned money for selling 12 boxes of birthday cards. And that was my prize. This, it was a red, white, and blue mitt. That I actually got when I was 11. It was red, white, and blue because we were celebrating our nation's bicentennial at that time. And that mitt I still have to this day. And there was a ball that was hit to second base, and the second baseman got it to throw to me to get the runner out at first. Well, I jumped. I remember jumping as high as I could to catch that ball because it was over my head. Next thing I knew, the boy ran right into me. I fell down with my feet laying over first base and then ended up just laying flat on my back. And I remember looking up and seeing the umpire and he's looking into my mitt and he saw that the ball was still there. So the boy was out. And so did you go on to continue playing after Little League? Yeah, I did actually. I signed up to play in what's called the Pony League for 13-year-olds, and I went to my first practice, and the coach hit me some fly balls. I could not catch one ball. I came home after that game and told my parents, I'm not going back. Well, I wish I would have gone back, but they couldn't have dragged me. I was so embarrassed having missed those balls. And it wasn't till later on when I became a father and had my son that I even got back into participating in Little League. When he was seven, he signed up to play coach pitch. And that was my first time to ever get to, to be a baseball coach. And that was the beginning of what I've been coaching now for nine years. I thought my time coaching was over because my son was now done playing baseball. But some of the parents of the boys on that team, they I guess they asked the league to call me back. And so I've still been coaching four more years. Do you feel like you had someone, whether it was one of your parents or both of your parents or even a coach that has inspired the way that you have coached? Yeah. When I made that catch playing first base and jumped up and that ball was in my hand. I still can remember the look on my coach's face. Coach Cowan. It's the only time I ever knew him was that one season of baseball, but I still remember his name. He came right to me cheering and said, great catch, Greg, great catch. So hearing that coach say that 34, almost 35 years ago has stayed with me. It's it's far more valuable to the game of baseball and to the lives of these children if they're given those opportunities. Maybe we don't win, but I've seen lots of games that we've lost where kids have had big smiles because they got to pitch and they struck someone out or they made a catch, but that's more important. The boys need to put the team first, but in coaching, the coach needs to put each individual boy first. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSU FM HD1 Logan.